Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's Tuesday, December 24th, 2019, what some call Christmas Eve. Today's show is called Three Kings and features segments from our programs on A.J. Musty, Mr. Rogers, and Benjamin Lay. We open with Wise One from John Coltrane's 1964 release, Crescent. For the rest of the program, we'll feature three versions of We Three Kings, performed by Wynton Marsalis, Jimmy Smith, and Dave Brubeck. The hymn was written in 1857 by American clergyman John Henry Hopkins, Jr. Today, the world does not shine so bright as one might hope. It is in response to this that we offer our show. It's in this season that so many offer prayers and speeches and testaments to caring and kindness as aspects of their particular faith. And yet it often seems that the tenets of religion are followed as a means to material success, or perhaps at least to justify it, to claim one is blessed in prosperity. But from the Mount, we hear that blessed are the poor, and yet it's the wealthy who receive comfort. Blessed are the meek, yet the strong force others to live lives unchosen. Blessed are the peacemakers, yet that term is used for the violent weaponry of war. And it's in this way we discover that even the best prayers and finest phrases can be tools of confusion and misrule. But what of action, of lives lived for the good? Today we highlight exemplars. Surely these men spoke and wrote exemplary texts, but they also lived lives that challenged the expectations of their time and culture. These are peacemakers, but they bring the fire of justice in both word and deed. These men fought for the lives of the oppressed. Perhaps the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Christian Bible gives the clearest instruction. Be good to your neighbor. Help those who have been defined as enemies, not by your own reckoning, but by habit and culture. Truly, neighbor describes us all. Our three kings, or three wise men, can offer us some aid when it comes to living lives in the service of all life. Modeled on the biblical magi of Christian tradition, these men brought gifts to a child said to be a once and future king. The three gifts had spiritual meaning. Sometimes this is described more generally as gold symbolizing virtue, frankincense symbolizing prayer, and myrrh symbolizing suffering. Let's begin with A.J. Musty, bearing the gold of virtue to us. A.J. Musty was referred to throughout the world as the American Gandhi, and he's probably best known for his leadership of the peace movement in the post-war era. But before that, he was one of the most influential labor organizers of the early 20th century. For this episode, I spoke with Leela Danielson, a professor of history at Northern Arizona University and author of American Gandhi, A.J. Musty, and the History of Radicalism in the 20th Century. And now, Three Kings, a Christmas Eve special on Interchange on WFHB. We just went from uh, A.J. Musty being uh, a, a militant, uh, vibrant, vital labor leader, success. Uh, the, the actual labor movement seems to really be moving. And, uh, but it, it's at this point that, that Musty kind of moves in a different direction, right? Yes, that's right. And so um, what happens is that his American Workers' Party is essentially, to some degree with his own um, uh, approval, uh, is taken over by a Trotskyist splinter group. And I'm not going to go into all of the details <laughs> oh about boy, that. You guys can those, read my yeah. book. 
But um, <laughs> what happens is that um, this experience um, includes tremendous... What, what he finds, essentially, is that um, his new comrades are using deceit, um, being extraordinarily sectarian, more concerned with questions of theory than getting into the action. And that sort of isn't what Musty's about. Musty, if he's about anything, it's about action. And so he becomes to feel that this sectarianism and so forth is a violation of what he calls working-class ethics. Mm. Um, it's manipulating and using others rather than trying to give the other fellow a chance. And so, um, so he begins to, to think that there's a fundamental problem here with the secular left, and that is that it seems to think that if you just change external circumstances, that you'll create better humans and a better society. And he says, you know, maybe that isn't true. And, of course, this is the context where, you know, Stalin's crimes begin to be revealed and so forth. And so his question, um, and then, uh, and so he, he's sort of having a crisis within the secular left and moves back into Christianity. He has a, a mystical experience that, that, that moves him back there. And so his question is, how can I be a Christian? How can I be a pacifist, somebody who wants to reconcile means and ends, and a revolutionary, and this is when he starts to explore Gandhian nonviolence. Mm. So, uh, one of the things that uh, he wrote in 1928, this is in Pacifism and Class War, is in a world built on violence, one must be a revolutionary before one can be a pacifist. In such a world, a non-revolutionary pacifist is a contradiction in terms, a monstrosity. So, uh, there is obviously a recognition that violence comes first at us from the state, from the economy, etc., and to ask people to be pacifist in the face of violence is a monstrosity. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he really maintains that critique of pacifism. One of the things about the American pacifist tradition was that it really came out of this tradition of individual non-resistance, right, or conscientious objection. So it was sort of an individualist tradition. Many pacifists were very dubious of um, labor's methods of collective action and striking and so forth. So when Musty comes back into the pacifist movement, he's determined to radicalize it, right? He remains a revolutionary. And he comes at a time when there's, a, there's sort of a leadership vacuum within the main pacifist organization at the time, um, the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And so he comes in, he's elected to, to lead that organization, and he wants to transform it into a vehicle for um, a Gandhian nonviolent movement. Um, and he does this in a couple of important ways. One is theoretical and theological. He uh, writes a book called Nonviolence in an Aggressive World, where he kind of lays out the, uh, the various rationales for um, nonviolence and, and also argues that it should be sort of adapted to American culture and conditions. And then he also, so it's, it's not just a theoretical question, but it's also an organizational question. And he brings in all of these young people, Bayard Rustin, George Hauser, um, I'm trying to think of others, James Farmer, right, um, who are very young, and he hires them as organizers, and they begin to practice the use of Gandhian nonviolence. Um, to challenge racial segregation and discrimination. And they do this largely in the North. They form a separate organization that Musty essentially funds called the Congress of Racial Equality. And they're active throughout the 40s and into the 50s. I mean, they're quite small, um, 
but later they're going to become um, one of the most important civil rights organizations. An essential thing that, that Musty does is recognize uh, race as a, a, a possibility to create a strong anti-war, uh, a strong anti, even maybe even an anti-state organization in some senses. The state is the, the organ of war. Mm, yes, interesting. Um, you know, it's interesting, though, because Musty was not... I mean, he definitely believed in the individual conscience against the state, particularly when it comes to militarism and racial policies and so forth. But he was never quite a libertarian or, or an anarchist. He was more of kind of a, I would call him sort of a socialist libertarian, if you know what I mean. Um, I think he still believed, um, uh, uh, I, I think he still would have believed that there probably needed to be a state. <laughs> right, um, right. He's I, concerned constantly, as you make uh, make through uh, your, the point throughout the book. He's concerned with these sort of compromises of the liberal state. Right. The the the, oh, the New yes. Deal sounds good, but it's it's a compromise, a democratic compromise with with again a state at war as much as anything else. Oh yeah, and you know one of the what happens that's so critical, of course, is the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, and. It used to be, before the Cold War, that there was a strong anti-militarist tradition in American society. And if you considered yourself sort of a a progressive or a liberal or a leftist, you were anti-war. But what happens during the Cold War is many liberals um, adopt anti-communism as a creed um, and support more or less the containment policy. And Musty was absolutely mortified by this. Um, With the explosion of the atomic bombs, with the creation of um, mandatory conscription, um, he helps to uh, he tries to organize resistance to this um, through civil disobedience campaigns. Um, the first draft card burning actually happens, I think, in 1947 or 1948, and Musty's there along with an, a smattering of other radical pacifists, and so he really tries to organize resistance to. Um, militarism to U.S. foreign policy at a time when there was incredible public support for it. It's Christmas Eve on Interchange on WFHB, and we're highlighting programs featuring radical Christians. We're listening to a selection from an interview with author Leela Danielson about A.J. Musty, once referred to as the American Gandhi, who was not only a fierce peace activist, but also one of the most influential labor organizers of the early 20th century. At one point, it was uh, uh, was uh, left and perhaps even American to be anti-war, and it seems to be a controversial stand uh, currently. Of course, it's always been in my lifetime a controversial stand to be anti-war, and it often becomes anti-American to be so. Uh, A.J. Musty, labor activist, American intellectual, pacifist, plausibly anti-American uh, in our terms today. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, so he's not very successful at first in organizing much resistance to the Cold War because it was so popular. But eventually he helps to kind of build the anti-nuclear movement, um, and first anti-nuclear t- uh, testing movement, right, that emerges in the mm-hmm. late 1950s, and then um, also um, the uh, Committee on Nonviolent Resistance to Nuclear Proliferation and really mm-hmm. advocates for a third camp at, or a third way between the the communism of the Soviet Union and the kind of capitalist democracy, imperial vision of that, represented by the United States. 
Um, so he, he and he is fairly successful with that, but he does always have to deal with that question of Americanism, right? Mm-hmm. And and um, being sort of having that position sort of uh, makes you persona non grata within the dominant discourse. Right. Musty writes at this time too. Tragedy has piled on tragedy for our country and for the world because the progressives, liberals, unions, and farm organizations, which ought to be flatly opposed to the nation's war course, are so uncritically anti-Russian and so ignorant of how really to overcome communism that they support the war policy. These forces line up with the right, with reaction, with violence, though they do not mean to do that and try to make themselves believe that they do not. Oh, that's a great quote. <laughs> and that represents his position perfectly. And all of this comes to a head during the Vietnam War. Mm. Um, because, uh, of course, with the Civil Rights Movement, you think about uh, Martin Luther King, who probably never approved of the war in Vietnam, but was told never to talk about foreign policy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because that will, you know, that will undermine the Civil Rights Movement. People will think you're, you know, soft on communism. And so uh, Musty is... Uh, constantly writing to King and saying, you need to come out against the war, you need to come out against the war. But King is rightfully fearful to do so, mm-hmm. because once he does that, is, is President Johnson going to answer his phone calls anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he finally does come out, um, and, um, and, and, you know, he's condemned by many liberals for doing so. Right. Uh, and... Um, and, and the same with many uh, liberals who had supported U.S. foreign policy and who sort of see Vietnam as simply a mistake, right? Um, clearly, the intractability of that conflict proved that it represented an overall pattern, right, in U.S. foreign policy. And this is something Musty is always trying to kind of um, to communicate. At the same time, um, he's so utterly devastated by this war in Vietnam that he takes very radical positions, right? He oversees draft card burning, civil disobedience, and so forth. But he also knows that they're, he's not, that they're not going to end the war without figuring out a way to make alliances and build a coalition with different kinds of groups. And I would say that, um, you know, that sort of represents the challenge, right, of the left, I think, in many respects, which is um, standing your ground in your, in your views about what is right and what is just. Um, but at the same time, recognizing that it's a fairly marginal position within American society. And so when Musty is successful or has the most influence is when he is building those kinds of alliances, still staying true to his own beliefs and being honest about them and finding spaces to express them, but by the same token, also opening up lines of communication and finding places of agreement. Uh, New Left historian Stoughton Lind wrote that historians of the future who want to know what it meant to live with integrity in the 20th century era of wars and revolutions will very likely begin with a life of A.J. Musty. One thing that I, I we kind of have glossed over here, and, and even though it's been a part of it, the, the conversation the whole time, is Musty as a Christian, right? Musty as a, clearly a devout man, uh, as Christianity has many interpreters and many true churches. Uh, how did American Christians react to the politics and activism of A.J. Musty? Oh, that's a great question. You know, um, liberal Protestantism was really hegemonic in um, American culture up until the 1940s, and well, really even into the 1950s and the 1960s. And he was sort of part of that world. You know, if you think of figures that maybe your audience has heard of, like Reinhold Niebuhr, or you've heard of organizations like the Federal Council of Churches, 
Muncie was really a central figure in those groups in, once he returned to the pacifist fold in the late 30s and 1940s. Many of those folks uh, identified as socialists and so forth. Um, but once the Cold War comes along, um, Reinhold Niebuhr becomes very influential in uh, sort of suggesting that um, uh, Christians have to be realistic. They have to compromise with power politics, right? And they have to support this Cold War. And that uh, if they occasionally sort of invoke the prophetic mode to criticize the United States, that would help to kind of curb the nation's arrogance. And Musty just dissented from that completely. He always believed that, you know, um, you had to think of uh, Christian ideals as real bl- blueprints for how society should be, right? And um, and believe that the prophetic tradition was calling people not just to sort of um, repent of their sins, but to change course, right? To, to, to sort of, you know, be, uh, you know, get on the right path, you know, be against war, be against racism and exploitation. Mm-hmm. And so he becomes much more marginal within that that world um, in the 50s and into the early 60s. But they still occasionally, you know, include him in certain kinds of forums. And by the mid-1960s and late 1960s, a lot of those Protestants, the sort of liberal Cold War Protestants, um, come to sort of become, in a sense, mustyites. Mm. And um, they come out strongly against the war. They support draft resistors. And so, in some ways, he gets sort of vindicated by the Vietnam War. It's time for a break, and here's our first version of We Three Kings. This is Wynton Marsalis off of the album Crescent City Christmas Card. We'll return with the gift of a discussion of Mr. Rogers, who imagined a universalizing idea of being a neighbor. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. This is a Christmas Eve special titled Three Kings, and it features selections from interviews about A.J. Musty, Mr. Rogers, and Benjamin Lay. In this segment, we offer Fred Rogers as our frankincense, the symbol of a prayerful life. For this show, I spoke with Michael Long, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Peace and Conflict Studies at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania, and author of Peaceful Neighbor, Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. Fred Rogers was a complex iconoclast, a television host who hated most television, a soft-spoken Presbyterian minister who purposefully addressed thorny topics others wouldn't touch, a broadcaster who insisted on speaking as if to a single child watching in his living room. Rogers' style was subtle, but his politics were radical. 
obviously a show that lasts for a very long time continues to build on those themes and practices what it preaches you know and the practice itself is the key issue right the practice of talking the practice of expressing a particular way you know the practice of being angry in a in a in a constructive way versus a destructive way these practices are what you're preaching um, but trying to understand them in, in in context is is difficult obviously in the moment right that takes reflection right and you know rogers uh had a sense that his legacy wasn't sure, mm-hmm. wasn't certain. And this came to him, especially during the Persian Gulf War, uh, when he imagined that many of the uh, young soldiers fighting in the Persian Gulf War had once watched his show. Mm-hmm. And it broke his heart to think that those young soldiers fighting on behalf of the government were leaving his teachings of peace behind. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, uh, agreeing to be intent on killing others. And that really broke his heart. And so at this point during the Persian Gulf War, uh, Rogers also became a great advocate of an idea that Senator John Heinz put into a bill. And the idea was uh, not to send single uh, soldier parents into battle mm-hmm. uh, because they would be separated from their children. and Their children would have difficult time finding care. And not to send... Uh, parents who both of whom were soldiers mm-hmm. uh, into war uh, he thought that's one of them should be able to stay home and rogers uh, lobbied for this he thought it was a great idea and um, he failed uh, mm-hmm. senator heinz's bill failed and, and rogers was i don't want to say apoplectic but he was incredibly disappointed mm-hmm. that, that legislation did not pass uh you know there was this is related to the story of immigration too i mean what upsets Rogers most in a child's life is the possibility that they will be separated from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. times of war or in any crisis. Uh, and it goes back to this, this experience that he had with his younger son, Johnny, in Canada when, and when the family lived there. Roger's family lived there. Rogers was working on a children's program in Canada at the time. And Johnny, his younger son, had to go into the hospital for hernia repair. It was a minor operation. And Rogers remembers this on occasion in front of public audiences, but not very often. And he recounts the story. And the story goes like this. Uh, Rogers and Joanne take Johnny to the hospital in Canada. They drop him off to the hospital staff. And the hospital staff just sort of takes him out of their arms and wheels Johnny down a long haul. And Rogers and Joanne are radically yeah, I'm going to use that word again, radically separated from Johnny at that point. And he is screaming and yelling as he's going down the hallway. There's no real time for a peaceful transition. There's no time for them to really comfort him while he's in the hospital or to help him prepare for this time in terms of going into surgery. He's just ripped out of their arms, as Rogers puts it. And it takes 45 minutes for him uh, to enter into surgery. And he's not calm at all during the whole time and rogers goes back to this experience and he sees it really as as the time that transformed johnny's personality mm-hmm. before this time rogers believes roger uh, johnny is in turn is developing health uh, but after this time he becomes uh psychologically problematic and spends some time in therapeutic care and rogers takes that moment and he uses it as a theoretical and experimental or experiential foundation for arguing against separating kids from their parents at any point, 
especially for war. Mm-hmm. Well, that is that again. It's one of the complex uh, facets of of all his stories, in some sense, right? They're able to to reflect on that one thing, which is uh, the sort of abusive nature of culture or society in the first place. You know, you're in some ways always torn from from the people you care about or from from those relationships that should build uh, strength in the community. Like we're constantly torn towards work uh, requirements of, of of labor, especially for uh, poorer members of our communities who work multiple jobs. Where are those relationships of love when when there's constant stress, constant pain, constant worry? Uh, this is this is an issue throughout our culture, right? We sort of grow troubled children yes. in the in this just in the simple fact of living in this particular culture. Now that doesn't exempt other cultures, their own problems, but this one right. is clear. Uh, now I, I don't, I don't recall reading the word capitalism in the book. Uh, you, you mentioned consumerism and obviously Fred Rogers is not an anti-capitalist per se, um, being a, a capitalist of a sort himself, right? He, you know, he's certainly wealthy and well off. Um, you know, he's had his own production company to, to sort of ma- maintain his own, um, uh, independence over his image and his work. So there's obviously a kind of conflict there, right? Because the system itself creates those damages that he's trying yes. to work against. And Rogers did work against that. And in his writings, he often writes about the need. And this might show some of his class bias. He writes about the need for a parent, one of the parents, if there are two. Uh, and he usually assumes that there are two early on. There's a need for one of the parents to stay home. Uh, there's not a need for another car. There's not a need for a bigger house. There's not a need for a two-car garage. There's not a need for a swimming pool. The real need is for a parent to stay home full-time and care for their child or their children. And Rogers uh, talks about this in his books quite a bit. And eventually he comes around and recognizes that, okay, so some women do need to go off to work. Uh, but in those cases, maybe the man can stay home full time and care for the children. But he's constantly pushing parents to stay home full time with their children. Uh, it might reflect early on, at least, his class bias that there wasn't a need for two incomes in a family. In fact, that just wasn't the case, mm-hmm. uh, even early on when he was writing these things. But he did come around to recognize that parents did sometimes need both incomes for their survival, uh, if only, and maybe a little bit of flourishing. And he recognized that. But at the same time, he constantly pushed for parents to stay home as much as they possibly could with their children. Mm-hmm. That was a really important issue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, the, he, yeah, go ahead. He was work a lot. You know, he didn't mirror that, I should say. Mm-hmm. He was at work a lot. And Joanne was the one who stayed home with the child, with the children, right? Mm-hmm. So Rogers himself didn't do that. But what's interesting is that in his work, he's showing up at children's homes in the middle of the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And their father is at work. And I'm speaking as if this is the late 60s mm-hmm. and 90s. Most of the times, their father is off at work, and here, here into their homes is this man. <laughs> And he's coming, and and he looks like their father. He's about the same age as their father, and he's asking to be their friend. So he's giving them a different model there, right? And not only that, but this man is ironing. He's ironing underwear. Uh, he's cooking. He's baking cookies, and he's doing all these peculiar things that their own fathers might not be doing. 
So while he's calling for somebody to stay home with the children, he's also uh, modeling for fathers to take up uh, tasks and chores that they might not otherwise do. It's Christmas Eve on Interchange on WFHB, and we're highlighting programs featuring radical Christians. We're listening to a selection from an interview with Michael Long, author of Peaceful Neighbor, discovering the countercultural Mr. Rogers. In the late 60s, Rogers imagined a place that would radically undermine the societal values of his time, an alternative space that subverted color lines, gender norms, and war. Let's talk politics and, and peace. And I think the the key takeaway for me and, and what actually made me, it's maybe odd to say this, but excited to watch some Rogers episodes was because of the way you cast them politically, the way that you, you, know, you situate them in time and mm-hmm. give them as responses to the world going on around us. And not necessarily, uh, one of my favorite words you use throughout actually is subtle. Uh, so, so that's a key term for you in this book is that Roger's responses are subtle. So let's, let's talk a little bit about how, uh, Fred Rogers is political. And you already mentioned, uh, the conflict week. So did you want to start there? We can talk about that particular series. Well, let me start by talking about, um, the ways I detest the internet clips of Fred Rogers. <laughs> okay. That's a good idea. <laughs> sure. Go ahead. I detest most of them because they're <laughs> historical. You know, they're sure. just sort of abstract. Like all things on the internet, it seems that way, right? Everything right. is kind of ripped out of its its context. Right, ripped out of its context. And I th- I, and, but if you place them in their historical context, which is the only way to understand them, the episodes, almost all of them are deeply political. Mm-hmm. And it's almost repulsive for some people, I think, to, to think of Rogers as political. He doesn't appear political, mm-hmm. does he? I mean, he wears his mother's sweaters and he wears uh, soft sneakers and he speaks in a soft voice but if you take at these programs they're deeply political starting with that first week in 1968 when mr rogers went national mm. uh, in that first week uh the vietnam war is raging mm-hmm. right 1968 and rogers devotes the week of programming to spreading words about peace and how important it is. And he says in the program, believe it or not, he says these words, he says, war isn't nice. Mm-hmm. Tell me that's not political. Right, sure. In no. the first week of his program. Yeah, shocking, right? I was like, wow, that's, he just, he just went out there and did it. He just, just the Vietnam War, didn't <laughs> right. he? And all those who supported right. it. And this is in 68 before the peace movement really found mm-hmm. its legs, right? Now, which country do you think this is, class? With the mountain and everything. I think it looks like up above land, Miss Cow. You're absolutely right, Daniel. Now, what about this one? What could that be? Uh, I think that's from Down Underland. Yes, and it used to be Down Underland, but not anymore. Oh, I know, I know. Yes, Prince Tuesday? That's the one that had the war with Sidestep Land. So now everything from Down Underland is in with Sidestep Land. That is correct. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I didn't live there. I am, too. I wouldn't like to live where they're having a war. We've never had a war here in make-believe, have we? No, not that I know of. There's no mention of war in this neighborhood in any of the history books. We've had fights when people get angry about things. Oh, sure. Well, everybody has those, Anna. 
But we don't have fights with guns and bombs and stuff here. That kind of thing must be awful. Mm -hmm. But what if you win? You get to take everything the losers have. That wouldn't be nice. No, it wouldn't. And war isn't nice. We've been very fortunate here in this neighborhood of make-believe not to have any wars. So Rogers is in some ways a pioneer uh, in terms of advocating for peace on television during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, so shortly after that as well, uh, he develops programs that, and I, I hope I'm not blurring too much here, Doug, but he develops programs about racial justice. Mm -hmm. In 1968, uh, King is assassinated, and before that, uh, the civil rights movement is continuing on full force, and Rogers uh, develops a week of programs in 1968 to racial issues. And in these programs, he welcomes Mrs. Saunders, an African-American teacher in the neighborhood, and her interracial uh, student group of students to his house in the neighborhood. Well, what's the message there? The message is that, well, maybe in society you'll see that schools are segregated and you don't live with African-Americans and African-Americans don't live with you. But in the neighborhood, damn it, we live together, play together, we study together. Fascinating stuff. Shortly after King's assassination, uh, riots erupt throughout the United States, right? Over 100 cities uh, engage in rioting. Rioting, uprising might be another word. And Fred Rogers looks at this and he knows it's troubling that children are seeing these images flooding into their uh, homes, images of African-Americans uh, engaging in riotous behavior. And so what he does is something radical too, politically radical, socially radical, culturally radical. He develops a character who's called Officer Clemens. Mm -hmm. And Officer Clemens is an African-American police officer in the neighborhood. Wow. This isn't a rioting African-American. This is a police officer who happens to be African-American. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say singing way to say I love you. There's the singing something someone really likes to hear. The singing way, the singing way, the singing way to say I love you. Uh, a police officer, I'm using the word loosely because he usually sings. He doesn't do a lot of uh, disciplining. But there you go. There's a new radical image in the neighborhood. Yeah, his uh, program is very political. And I'm just talking about 1968 here, Doug. <laughs> right. Is it pretty consistent that you think uh, Fred Rogers spent the, the bulk, if not all of his uh, energies, you sort of just generally, as you say, combating the world as it is? In, in an attempt to create a world in which you could uh, live like uh, the, the kingdom of make-believe, live in a world in which you talked and dealt with things in a particular way, that everything then becomes a radical response against the nature of the world he was living in via television in particular. Television takes over. Um, and and how we, we see the world, his daily effort against the world as it is, or the world as it's depicted, and how we model those things. 
Right. In my interpretation, and I and I, I leave it up to the readers and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the hearers here, your audience, to, to figure out whether it's right or not, is that Rogers devoted his program to creating an alternative polis, right? Mm-hmm. An alternative political society. And it's alternative and radical in this way. While wider society taught children that war was okay, the neighborhood of make-believe did not. Mm-hmm. While wider society taught children that segregation, racial segregation was okay, the neighborhood of make-believe did not. While wider society taught that it was okay for women uh, not to be paid as much as men and not to have the same types of jobs, uh, not to assume leadership roles in important companies, the neighborhood taught that women could do exactly that. Mm-hmm. Uh, while the neighborhood, while the wider society taught that oh, it was okay to litter, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was okay to keep animals outside. It was okay to eat meat. <laughs> uh, Rogers used his program to embrace vegetarianism, to show the importance of caring for animals, and to talk about the importance of caring for the environment as well. What we get in this program is an entire policy devoted to undermining wider society and its values. It's time for another break and the second rendition of the 1857 hymn, We Three Kings. This is Jimmy Smith from the 1964 album, Christmas Cookin'. When we come back, Benjamin Lay and Suffering, or The Gift of Myrrh, on our Christmas Eve interchange on WFHB. Back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. For Christmas Eve, we bring you Three Kings. You've already opened the gifts of gold and frankincense, and now it's time for myrrh, which symbolizes suffering. For this final segment, we offer the curious case of Benjamin Lay. Englishman, Quaker, cobbler, sailor, cultural shock firebrand, cave dweller, autodidact, animal liberationist, and outspoken critic of the hypocrisy of slave-owning Quakers in 18th century Pennsylvania. When you need an example of a person who walks the talk, look no further. Our guest is historian Marcus Redeker, author of The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. Benjamin Lay was born in Essex, England in 1682. 
uh, into a Quaker family. He was a third-generation Quaker. He actually stood to inherit a family farmstead, but he turned his back on that, ran away to London, where he worked as a sealer for 12 years, uh, acquired a lot of worldly experience. Uh, he then came back to London when he, where he worked as a glover. He got involved uh, once again in Quaker meetings. He caused a good bit of controversy at that time. Uh, then he went to Barbados in 1718, and this proved to be a transformative moment in his life. He had entered, he and his wife Sarah Lay uh, had entered the world's leading slave society, and they saw up close and personal all of the horrors of slavery. People uh, dying of hunger, people being worked to death, tortures, executions, and being tender-hearted, Benjamin and Sarah Lay were quickly converted into abolitionists. They began to feed the hungry. Uh, they entertained them in their home. Uh, but, of course, the crowds of people who flocked to see them grew by such extraordinary numbers. It attracted the, uh, the attention of the island's ruling class, and Benjamin and Sarah were basically pressured to leave. Uh, back to London. Uh, then they immigrated to Philadelphia, 1730 to and lived in Philadelphia until uh, Sarah actually died in 1735. Benjamin outlived her uh, by quite a number of years. He passed away in 1759. During this time, during the time in Philadelphia especially, he was the leading force trying to convince Quakers to abolish the institution of slavery. One of the most militant opponents of slavery uh, that institution has ever known uh, and he did do his best to use shock to force people into a sense of proper ethical behavior. So when you said, Doug, that the book begins by shocking the reader, that's appropriate because that's exactly what Benjamin Lay wanted to do with his fellow Quakers, shock them so that they would think and think hard about what they were doing in owning slaves. I do love the levelers, diggers, ranters, and seekers, and Quakers. And I never, I guess I never put Quakers together um, with those other terms simply because the others don't really, haven't uh, lived on, I suppose, right? So the Quakers became a kind of institutional, religious uh, organization, while the others became uh, kind of a, a story in history, right? Exactly. And, and I think one reason why we don't tend to associate Quakers with that kind of radicalism is that they have evolved into something that is quite respectable and middle class. Mm -hmm. uh, many Quakers are made a little anxious by the very radical origins of their group, but it is extremely important to remember that. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, they're, they were the longest lasting of the radical groups of the English Revolution. Uh, and it's also important that they, along with the others, in many ways represent the origins of modern democracy. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that they insisted on was a more democratic society, a more egalitarian society, and the spiritual egalitarianism of Quakers in particular is going to be very crucial, both Benjamin Lay and even to the subsequent self-definition of the entire group. Mm. Well, it is kind of a, an important thing to, to sort of I guess, point out the religious dimension. In one sense, the, the metaphysical uh, allows us to, to create a, a sense of e equality that the visual 
rejects in some ways, right? So society is built on these sort of visual cues. You talked about hats and, and doffing caps and, and dress itself is a way in which we decide whether people are of higher station or not. So one of the ways in which this is fascinating is the idea that spiritually uh, we are the same, you know, God shines in all of us kind of aspect of this, right? So that that in itself is a radical uh, um, leveling perspective. Absolutely is. And I, and I think it's very important to remember this. These, uh, these subversive ideas about the equality of humankind, this was something that elites worked very hard to discredit. And I think this is one of the things that uh, was most important about the English Revolution. It created a, a legacy for later movements, uh, a more democratic, a more egalitarian legacy. And I would here, uh, Doug, like to introduce a kind of a complicated word okay. called antinomianism. Oh, good. I was about to ask that, so good. Okay, antinomianism. This is not a word that most people are familiar with, but it's really crucial to the English Revolution, and it's crucial to Benjamin Lay. An antinomian, as the etymology of the word suggests, anti meaning against, and nomos basically means authority, uh, the sign of authority. Mm -hmm. An antinomian was someone who rejected the authority of the day, and he or she, because of their own quality of religious belief and a direct connection to God, thought that they were no longer required to obey the law because they knew what was right. This is, in a sense, an enshrinement of the individual conscience mm -hmm. uh, against the law. And someone like Lay would say, we're not bound to obey, to obey any laws that rich men have made for themselves in order to protect their slave, their slave investment. We're not allowed. We, we don't have to obey those laws. We can rise above those. We are going to obey a higher calling. So this higher law doctrine emerges out of antinomianism and will actually become, in the 19th century, a centerpiece of the abolitionist movement. And Lay himself was antinomian to the bone. Nobody could tell him what to do. He was sure that he was right, and he was absolutely convinced that slavery was evil, must be abolished right now. Very good. Uh, antinomians, uh, maybe it's a good thing to call, uh, call some, someone like uh, Henry Thoreau an antinomian as well. The, the idea that consciousness is the, is the thing you have to pay attention to, or conscience is the thing you have to pay attention to. I think that there's a direct line between the uh, antinomian Quakers and Benjamin Lay to people like Thoreau. I think that's a, a very important trend in the long-term development of radicalism. It's Christmas Eve on Interchange on WFHB, and we're highlighting programs featuring radical Christians. We're listening to a selection from an interview with historian Marcus Redeker author of The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. Benj Lay was a guerrilla activist who would not bend in his principles, refusing the commercial comforts produced by capitalist slavery and shaming any who did, especially his fellow Quakers. So one, one question, I guess, uh, that, that I might ask, and this does have to do with, uh, again, trying to paint the picture of Benjamin Lay, because it's a radical picture in itself, right? The, the idea of, the, um, of a man who, who not only uh, is a, a sort of, a, a, as you say, I think a guerrilla theater activist in many ways and trying to harken back to the time when, when Quakers themselves were more radical than they became, um, is also um, someone who is visually arresting to people. 
part of what is uh, fascinating about Benjamin Lay is his own his own physical stature, right? And you can tell us about that in a uh, uh, in a second. But also, my question would be if that physical stature itself, uh, in some ways, while we might say created um, uh, an, an exile, you know, a sort of uh, an exile outside of regular culture, but in some ways, if it protected him, allowed him to say the things he did uh, in ways that maybe other men at the time would not have, like he wouldn't have been stood for, uh, that there's something about the, the stature of Lay himself that kind of protected him. You know, Doug, I'm really glad that we spent uh, a good few minutes talking about Benjamin Lay before we came <laughs> to the fact that he's a dwarf. Me too. He was a dwarf. He was also a hunchback. He was a little over four feet tall. And uh, there is no question that his life as a little person affected his politics, uh, but it also affected his guerrilla theater. So here's what I would say about that. First of all, I think that Benjamin suffered a great deal of scorn and persecution. He was mocked, laughed at, denigrated, uh, not only because he held these very radical ideas against slavery, but because he was a little person. Mm -hmm. He suffered for that. But I think the crucial thing about uh, his, living his life uh, in that way is that I do believe that his experience as a dwarf increased his empathy for other people who suffered some kind of oppression. Uh, he, he had when he went to Barbados, he was so full of fellow feeling for these Africans who were being tortured. Uh, who, who were dying. He befriended people. He was very moved by this. Part of Lay's empathy uh, grew from the fact that he'd been a sailor for all those years, uh, where he had really imbibed this ethic of solidarity. Sailors worked in a dangerous environment, so he had a very strong sense of solidarity. Part of it was the Quaker ethic of spiritual egalitarianism, but part of it, I think, was Benjamin's own experience and the way in which he identified with those who, who suffered. Hmm. So his, his stature as a little person is definitely a significant part of his story. Now, I, we don't have a lot of evidence about this, Doug. I have to say that. Uh, Benjamin only once comments on the fact that he was a dwarf because someone wrote in Benjamin Franklin's newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, a sort of nasty comment making fun of Benjamin for being short and... Uh, uh, twisted of body, as it said. He, he was also a hunchback. Benjamin's response to that was to say, uh, look, we have the bodies we have. There's nothing we can do, but we are accountable for the ideas we hold and we are accountable for how we behave. So let's talk about that. So you can see that his investment was as a person of ideas. Mm -hmm. It was common in the English Revolution that radicals who perform street theater would use personal eccentricities in order to capture people's appearance. We don't know for sure if that was Benjamin's motive or not, but we know that he certainly did capture people's attention. In fact, Benjamin Rush, a very famous physician who signed the Declaration of Independence, uh, once noted that because Benjamin Lay performed these acts of guerrilla theater, he was probably the best-known person in all of Pennsylvania at that time. It's Christmas Eve on Interchange on WFHB, and we're highlighting programs featuring radical Christians. We're listening to a selection from an interview with historian Marcus Redeker. 
author of The Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. Benj Lay was a guerrilla activist who would not bend in his principles, refusing the commercial comforts produced by capitalist slavery and shaming any who did, especially his fellow Quakers. These are institutions born of uh, commerce, right? Born of wealth, born of this sort of new, new world of, of money that is, in a sense, in a kind of way, an egalitarian growth of money, right? In some sense, there's this idea that this is a, that this is a beginning of the a real market economy, where, which opened up uh, wealth accumulation to 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 more than just uh, aristocratic elites, right? So there's this kind of grasping world of of wealth accumulation that he's struggling against as well. Absolutely true. Uh, Benjamin Lay saw slavery as a result of human greed, human avarice. He used the word covetousness. He thought this was destroying Quakerism, and he thought it was also destroying the entire society. So what's really fascinating about Lay, and this is one of the things that makes him a revolutionary abolitionist, is that he had a critique not only of slavery, but of the market economy. Now, his critique of that was actually lived out. In other words, he didn't simply write down ideas about what was wrong with slavery or what was wrong with this new world of capitalism. Benjamin Lay didn't simply write his ideas in, in a book. Uh, he lived them in his personal life. And let me give you some examples. Benjamin believed that human beings should live without exploiting other human beings and without exploiting animals. Therefore, he refused to consume any commodity that had been produced by slave labor. Uh, he was the first person to do this. This will later become a key tactic in the struggle against slavery, the boycott of sugar, for example. He saw this first, and what he saw was the commodity disguises the conditions under which it was created. In other words, you take a, a cube of sugar and drop it in your tea, unless you think, as Benjamin Lay urged people to do, you don't know that that sugar was made with the blood of enslaved people. So he had this idea that the market actually disguised human oppression. I think this is actually still true today, and I think this is one of the points of the anti-sweatshop movement, mm -hmm. to people to be conscious of the conditions of in factories in Indonesia or Vietnam uh, and how their expensive shoes, running shoes, are manufactured. Benjamin Lay had this same idea 250 years ago. Mm -hmm. But to go back to how he lived it, he made his own food, produced his own food. He also made his own clothes. And when he made them, he made them out of flax rather than wool because wool involved, shearing wool was violence against sheep. He, uh, he, he got the flax, he would spin it himself, he would weave it. This was his commitment to living outside that market economy. Hmm. He was not going to participate in the oppression that came with that way of generating wealth. He rejected this kind of thing uh, straightforwardly, and he provided an example of how people could live if they shared those ideals. That's hmm. great. Uh, and, you know, he's a great example, as you say, of a revolutionary, right? And, and one of the things we get caught in here and we continue to be sort of stuck in and how, how our, our particular economy, our particular way of living 
uh, confuses us sometimes is that we live in a reformist a- atmosphere for the most part, right? So revolution is, this is the thing that has to change now because it is obviously wrong for these obvious reasons. And if we don't stop it now, then we are, in a sense, condemning ourselves to this this hell we're creating. And we're a part of the hell. We experience the hell as well. The reform accepts the culture as is, accepts the thing as is, and seeks these little little changes that, as you say, kind of create a, a cosmetic change, uh, while still kind of keeping within it the exploitation, the manipulation, uh, the hiddenness of that of that fact. So, lay not a reformer uh, like like Rush, perhaps, but uh, a revolutionary. No, that, that's very well said, and I think that describes Benjamin Lay uh, very clearly. He he rejected a world governed by money. Uh, he actually talked about this in uh, in some marginal comments he made uh, in one of his books that money destroys society and we really must imagine an entirely new way of living. Now, the fact that he lived this way, uh, he was he was unusual in this regard, although there were, were other cave dwellers uh, in Pennsylvania at that time, but he did capture the imagination of a lot of people who came to his cave to visit him and engage in philosophical debate with him. Uh, Benjamin Franklin came. Uh, Richard Penn, the governor of Pennsylvania, came. Uh, Lay always had an ability to command the uh, attention of powerful people. Now, part of this is because he was a brilliant conversationalist. Mm. He was extremely uh, sharp and witty uh, and very challenging so that people would actually go to see him just because they knew that they would be in for some, sort of some, some verbal fireworks. But the other reason people went to see him was because they wanted to see exactly how does someone live outside the world of money? How do you do it? Uh, and, and he provided an example for that. And that, I think, is one of the things that led to people telling so many stories about him uh, and just how very revolutionary he was. That's our show. We'll close with Dave Brubeck's 1996 version of We Three Kings. We hope our Christmas Eve gifts, examples of virtue, prayer, and suffering go some way to counter the consistent selfishness and materialism that seems to pervade a holiday dedicated to the birth of a man whose every word is a hammer blow against them. Do you have ears to hear? Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Our executive producer is Cade Young. This is Community Radio, WFHB, in Bloomington, Indiana.